0: Lord Jesus, You are a sure and steady anchor in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of a world of sin and evil. We trust in You as our anchor. We trust in You as the anchor of all anchors. And so Lord, I pray that for moms in this room, moms who are discouraged, moms who are sad, moms who are worn out. God, I pray that You'd be the sure and steady anchor of their soul. For those that are grieving, missing their moms today, Lord, I pray that You would would give them that, that hope and that joy and that peace that only the great anchor can give. God, I pray today that for all of us, we would bend our ears to Your Word, for no matter what we're facing, we need to hear Your Word In joy and in sorrow, in celebration and in defeat, we need to hear Your Word. So Lord, would You help us to listen intently, knowing that You have a feast for us. You have something You want to say to us. You you want to declare Your truth to us. You want to challenge our lives. You want to challenge our view of things. And You want to build in us a healthy and God-centered and flourishing and fruitful truth that You proclaim to us. So would You do that now, Lord? We need to hear Your Word. And I pray You'd help me to preach Your truth as Your truth. Lord, help me to declare it. And help me to declare it faithfully to Your people to build Your church and to mature Your people. Help me in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bible with me to the book of James, chapter 5. We've been studying the book of James as a church and we are now in the last chapter. We have reached chapter 5 and the question we come to this morning is not what we want to hear or what we think we need to hear. The question is what does God want us to hear and what does God say that we need to hear and so we're at this passage by the providence of God for this morning and remember that I warned you from the beginning of this study of James that the book of James is relentless. In fact, I think the illustration that I used was that studying the book of James is like stepping into the ring with a heavyweight boxer. For the past four months, James has been, for the good of our souls, jarring us from our spiritual mediocrity. Church, we need this. Church, we need this. We need to hear God's Word loud and clear. No pretense, no hiding, no games, no skirting the issues. Let's listen to the truth of God because we need to hear the powerful and authoritative truth of our holy God. And so follow along as I read James 5, verses 1-6. through 6. James 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich... He does not resist you. This is the word of God. May God imprint its truth on our hearts. So, as we've seen throughout this study, James will not allow those of us who claim to love the gospel to live as if the gospel makes no difference in our lives. James forces us to come to terms with the imperatives of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is living, it's active, it's a powerful faith that produces radical obedience in our lives. James James teaches us that the Gospel works. The Gospel is powerful in our lives. Well, in this particular passage, James sounds like one of the Old Testament fire and brimstone preachers. This passage sounds like something we would read in the book of Amos or in Micah. This is an oracle of judgment. A loud call to repentance and holiness. James preaches here with prophetic zeal. And this passage is just the first half of this section that runs through verse 12. And the theme of these first 12 verses of James 5 is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So notice the reference to the last days at the end of verse 3. We're living in the last days. These days between the first and second coming of Christ. And so, the reference to the last days in verse 3. Notice down in verse 7, we're urged to be patient until the coming of the Lord. A clear reference to the second coming of Jesus. Notice verse 8. James says, says the coming of the Lord is at hand. And in verse 9, James says, the judge is standing at the door. So, James is teaching what the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is coming again to rescue his people and to judge the entire world. I think there are two purposes of this passage in light of the coming of Jesus to judge the world. First, in verses one through six, there's a warning to the wealthy. Here's James's point it's foolish to misuse wealth in light of the reality that the judge is coming soon. That we are living in the last days. It is foolish to misuse wealth in light of that. And secondly, in verses 7 through 12, there's this encouragement to endure until the Lord comes. We have to remain patient and steadfast because we know that the judge is coming and he will bring justice to the earth. And so this morning, we're focusing on this word to the wealthy, this warning to the wealthy in the first six verses. And then God willing, next Sunday, we'll focus on the encouragement to endure, knowing that Jesus is coming back to bring His perfect justice to all of creation. And so notice the stern warning again in verse 1. James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James calls these rich people to awaken to the reality of the coming judgment of God. James says there is coming a day of reckoning. God is just and God will punish all sin. Now before we look at what James says about the rich here and the miseries that are coming upon them, we have to ask a very important question. The question is, exactly who is James addressing in this passage? And the question is, is James addressing unbelieving wealthy people, or is he addressing Christian wealthy people? There's a considerable debate about this question, and commentators are fairly divided on their answers to this question. But if you say this is addressed primarily to unbelievers, then you have to answer the question, why does James write this warning in a letter to believers? If he's writing to unbelievers, then why does he write this in a letter to believers? But if you say he's addressing this primarily to believers, then you have to answer the question, why does James only condemn and and offer no promise of, of reconciliation or forgiveness, but only judgment to believers? Now, honestly, I'm not exactly sure who James is addressing in this passage, but here is what I am confident of. This is a letter written to the church. It's a letter written to the church. James intended this letter to be read by Christians and not just by random Christians sitting alone at home, but by gathered Christians. We can see that later in chapter five where he says, is anyone among you sick? call the elders of the church. And so he's addressing the the body of, of Christ. So whoever you think James is directly addressing in this passage, it's clear that he intends the Christians, that is the church, to hear this warning. And so whether he's specifically addressing believing rich people or unbelieving rich people, I think the point is the same. This is a stern warning against the ungodly use of wealth. And even believers will be judged for their sinful use of God's resources. And if these are unbelievers that James is primarily concerned with here, if he's addressing the rich of the world, then the warning to believers is clear, is it not? Don't envy the wealth of the world. If this is what unbelieving rich people will experience, then don't envy their wealth. I agree with John Calvin who wrote of this text. He says, uh, James has regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. And also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. So maybe as a warning to the unbelieving rich, and as a warning to believers to not desire to be rich, James here condemns the sinful use of wealth. It's the burden of this passage. James condemns the sinful use of wealth. And we need to hear this warning this morning. We need to hear this warning, church. And Specifically, we need to hear this for two reasons. First, we need to hear this because we're all wealthy. All of us are in the category of the rich. If your family makes more than $20,000 a year, you are among the wealthiest Christians in the history of the church. And most of us are not just wealthy in comparison to our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history, but we are wealthy in comparison to even people in our society today. But secondly, we need to hear this warning because all of us desire to be wealthy. Not only are all of us actually wealthy, but all of us have this desire in us to be more wealthy than we are. Like, who of us could say we are totally content with our income, totally content with the possessions that we have? As you know, the Bible has strong warnings against those who desire to get rich. For example, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get to heaven. Paul said that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul also said that the love of money, the desire for wealth, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that people have pierced themselves with many pangs. So envying the wealthy is spiritual suicide. Envying the wealthy is foolish. If, If you intentionally put yourself in the path of riches, for riches' sake, you put yourself in the path of the train of the justice of God. Friends, we need to hear this warning. Church, we need to hear this call because we live in the midst of a culture that urges us to pursue wealth with all our might. In our day and age, even Christians are being taught to be fascinated with the goal of building wealth and pursuing riches. Now, one more comment before we jump into the text and see what James says to rich people. These people are not being condemned merely for their wealth. Having money and things is not sinful in and of itself. Money is morally neutral. God is the giver of all wealth. He distributes wealth according to His sovereign purposes and He should be praised for it. These people are condemned because of their sinful use of and accumulation of wealth. Money itself is not sinful. But there's a great danger in how we use the wealth entrusted to us by God. So particularly if you take notes, there are three ways that riches lead to judgment in this passage. Three sinful uses of money that James highlights. Here's number one. Money leads to judgment when it is selfishly hoarded. Money leads to judgment when it is selfishly hoarded. So notice how James presents the foolishness of hoarding wealth in light of the coming judgment of God. Look at verses 2 and 3. James says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure. You have hoarded treasure in the last days. Now remember in James's day, they didn't have things like 401ks or cryptocurrency to invest money in. In the first century, wealth was amassed with food, clothing, and precious metals. And notice how James attacks all of these forms of wealth. He says the food they have stored up for themselves has done what? It's rotten. Poor people are going hungry while these people have barns full of grain and wheat that are never even touched. Their garments are moth-eaten. People around them go without proper clothing while their expensive garments become food for insects. Hoarding wealth amounts to feeding moths, James says. And even their gold and silver have corroded. Even their gold and silver, he says, have rusted. Which James knew as well as we know that pure gold, pure silver does not corrode, does not rust. but he's, he's giving this as a powerful picture of what their wealth is going to do. In verse 3, gold and silver were considered by these people as indestructible metals. This was a form of of wealth that rich people thought they could count on, that they could rely on. And James's point is that even the things that we think are sure bets in this life will be worthless in light of eternity. Will be worthless if they are selfishly hoarded. Notice the graphic picture of the seriousness of hoarding wealth in the middle of verse 3. James says, the things we hoard will be evidence against us and will eat our flesh like fire. The more we selfishly hoard for ourselves, the more we store up witness against ourselves before the judgment of God. James is calling us to view our bank accounts, our checking accounts, our investment accounts, our possessions, our properties in light of eternity. This world is not our home. God gives us riches not so that we can build bigger barns and buy fancier clothes and earthly securities, but so that we can join Him in His redemptive purposes. There's another graphic picture of hoarding that God gives us in the book of Exodus. Every morning God used to rain down manna, would put it on the ground so that His people would open their tent in the morning and there would be food for them to eat. On the ground, just there for them to to take. And God's command to His people was clear. They were to gather only enough for that particular day. They were not to gather for next week or tomorrow, but only enough for today. However, what did God's people do? They doubted God's provision. They failed to trust Him and His promises, and so they gathered more than they needed for that day. Just in case God didn't come through with His promise tomorrow, they would have something to eat. And you know what happened to the manna that they selfishly hoarded? It became rotten, filled with worms, and stank. This was God's way of saying to His people, trust Me for your provision each and every day. Don't trust in what you've stored up. I am your provider. I will take care of you. Remember, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the principle. James says riches spoil if they are selfishly hoarded. And not only that, but James says we will be judged for how we have stored up treasures on earth. If we could somehow see from eternity's perspective how pointless treasures we store up on earth are, we would, James says, weep and howl. And you know the problem with talking about hoarding, don't you? The problem with talking about hoarding is none of us think we hoard. I've never heard anyone admit to the fact that they are a hoarder. We all think everyone else, right? Everyone who has more stuff than us. Everyone who has more than us. That's that's the people that hoard, right? We view our savings. We view our retirement. We view our possessions as wise and necessary. We're like the guy who stocked his basement full of food and water and gas. And when his wife asked him why he's storing up all these goods, he said, I had to get all this stuff before the hoarders got it all. You see, the hoarders are everyone else. But my my decisions are wise and thoughtful. So how do you know if you're hoarding? If no one likes to admit it, then how do we know? Well, there's not a formula. I wish there was one. But it's a heart and motivation issue. So let me give you two questions to ask yourself to begin to evaluate whether you are selfishly hoarding. Please resist the temptation to evaluate someone else. Evaluate yourself now. First question, do you have more than you'll ever use? Do you have more than you'll ever use? You see, sometimes savings is wise when we save in order to free ourselves up to be involved in God's purposes. But a lot of times our saving is simply accumulating more than we'll ever genuinely need. Have you ever wondered why houses built 50 years ago had few and small closets? While houses built today have these massive walk-in closets that are bigger than the the, the rooms sometimes. The typical American probably has five times as much stored than previous generations today. We have too much stuff, more than we'll ever use. Here's the second question. Do you find security in what you have? This is how you know whether you're a hoarder or not. Do you find security and the things you have stored up. This question really gets at the heart of our hoarding. I suppose the main reason we hoard is to insulate ourselves against possible disasters. Right? Hoarding is a way of feeling confident that no matter what happens, we're going to be prepared financially. Now here's the question of that. That can be very wise, but here's the question of it. Where's your trust? Do you trust God to provide for your every need Or do you view your savings as sort of a backup plan just in case he doesn't? Just in case God doesn't come through this time for you. Hoarding is a way of preparing ourselves for possible future calamity while James says hoarding neglects certain future judgment. So how foolish is it to trust in our wealth to rescue us from possible trouble? while at the same time neglecting certain trouble. Storing up more than we need is basically idolatry. When we hoard, we worship our own safety, we worship our own security, and we neglect the fact that Jesus is coming to judge. And so James says money leads to judgment when it's selfishly hoarded. God has not entrusted His resources to us in order for us to store them up. He's entrusted them to us that we might be generous and open-handed. That's the first truth about the sinful use of wealth in this passage. Here's the second one. Money leads to judgment when it is gained through, in, through injustice. Money leads to judgment when it's gained through our injustice. So it matters how we accumulate our wealth. Any wealth gained by injustice, fraud, or oppression... James says, will lead to judgment. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Behold, which means, listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, he says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. I don't know if this means literally or I don't know if this means figuratively, but they're defrauding. They're creating injustice and that injustice is helping them gain more and more for themselves. The people James is writing to have fattened their wallets by taking advantage of those who depend on them for their provision. These people have not paid their workers. Their workers mowed their fields. Their workers picked their their harvest. And they haven't paid them or haven't paid them a fair wage. And James says that their injustice and their oppression has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God is the commander of the armies of heaven. He's in control of the host of angels and principalities and powers of the spiritual realm. And to cheat others is to provoke the Lord of hosts to action. God hates injustice. God cares for the lowly and He will not allow the rich to treat the poor with contempt. And so the obvious application or primary application of verse 4 is for those of you who are responsible for the salaries of those who work for you. All right? Pay them and treat them in view of the coming of Jesus to judge. Never hold back a fair wage from those who work for you or from those who do work for you. But there's application for us all here, isn't there? The principle of verse 4 and verse 6 is that we are not to accumulate wealth at the expense of others. We are not to make a living by exploiting or defrauding people made in the image of God. We are to reflect God's character by caring for the needs of others, not taking advantage of others. But if you are being oppressed by others, if, if you're one of the ones who's being treated unjustly, Notice James here does not give any permission to sort of make your voice heard or take back what's yours. James says, be patient. Endure knowing that the Lord sees this injustice. The Lord hears your need and the Lord will judge those who oppress you. The Lord's justice gives hope to us to humbly and patiently endure oppression and mistreatment. The judge is at the door. He's coming soon, James says. And God willing, we'll see this more clearly next week in verses 7-12. through But the point here is, don't accumulate riches through injustice or fraud or oppression. If you do, James says, that money will cry out against you on the day of judgment. It will be a witness to you. Here's the third and the final sinful use of money that James highlights. Money leads to judgment when it is used for self-indulgence. Money leads to judgment when it is used for self-indulgence. So notice verse 5. James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So in verse 5, James has really gone to meddling in our business. James says it matters what we do with the wealth entrusted to us. If we live in luxury and in self-indulgence, we will be judged. The imagery at the end of verse 5 is shocking. James compares self-indulgence to cattle that enjoys the very food that will get it slaughtered in a few days. He says, we're living in the last days. Life is short and Jesus is coming again. And it is foolish to live as if the point of life is to accumulate more and more comforts for ourselves. John Piper has said, we're like the man who spent his whole life accumulating train tickets only to be so weighed down at the end that we miss the train. One of the principles in Randy Alcorn's fantastic little book called The Treasure Principle is this, he says, God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. The reason God entrusts to us more than what we need is not so that we can enjoy more and more luxuries for ourselves, but so that we can support his global causes in this world. We have laid up way too much for ourselves and way too little in heaven. We have spent far too much on our own comforts and far too little to meet the needs of those without food, water, or the hope of the Gospel. Now, the problem with talking about self-indulgence is the same as that of hoarding, right? None of us think we live luxurious lives. We all think we live modestly and wisely. So ask yourself this question this morning. Do you ever deny yourself? Do you ever deny yourself? Like, are there times when you actively give up something that you really want in order to free up resources for God's purposes? Like, I'm not asking if you ever forego something because you don't think you have the money or it might not be a wise purchase. I'm asking, are there times where you have the money, you want to do the thing, you could purchase it, you could enjoy that experience, but you deny yourself that experience, that possession, so that you can specifically give that money to the local church or to missions. Ligan Duncan has said, no matter where our level of income is, we're not denying, if we're not denying ourselves from time to time, we're in sin. And he said, frankly, the more you have, the harder it is to deny yourself in that way. Through the years, I've seen friends give up things like cable television, not just so that they could have more money in their monthly budget, but so that they could give more to God's purposes. I remember one friend who gave up his membership to a country club, quit playing golf, sold his golf clubs because he was convicted that the time and the money he spent on golf could be better used to support God's purposes. Is that saying it's wrong to have cable television or wrong to play golf? Absolutely not. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Just giving examples of ways that people, Christians, have sacrificed in order to do more to support the purposes of God. Have you ever felt the sting of giving to God and His purposes? Like, have you ever just foregone a strong desire for something for the sake of the church or the mission of God? Have you ever given anything away that actually cost you something? Friends, it's not sin to own things. It's certainly not sin to enjoy the good things that God provides. But it is sin for those things to own us and for us to order our lives around increasing our own comforts and our own luxuries. See, so here's, the, here's the principle. The way to really enjoy the things God has provided is to distribute them to support the local church, to support ministries that are accomplishing God's global purposes. That's the way to really enjoy wealth and money. James says it's foolish to live in self-indulgence, to live in luxury, in light of the coming judgment of God. So there it is again. James has messed us up. but This is good for us, church. This is so good for us. It's good for us to submit to the blessing of the conviction of God. And if you feel conviction over this passage, as I do, I just want to encourage you to rejoice that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. Just thank God for the conviction of His Word. Like I don't want to be among those who just separate myself so much from the church and from the preaching of God's Word and from the reading of God's Word that you just never feel conviction. You just just live as if everything is always okay and you're always doing the right thing. I I don't want to be there and I hope you don't want to be there either. So rejoice that God is speaking to you, that He's convicting you in in your life, in your family. And if that's you, turn from your sin and embrace Christ as your only and all-sufficient Savior. Both wealthy believers and wealthy unbelievers need to repent of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus alone. Let me close with just some quick words of application. Seven rapid-fire encouragements and challenges to leave you with. I'm going to do these pretty quickly. Number one, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He will return to judge the living and the dead, and the second coming of Jesus should impact the way we live today, should impact the way we view money and luxuries and wealth. Secondly, live with the end in view. Live with the end in view. This is really what James is getting at in this passage. As Christians, we're to live now in light of eternity. What we do here and now matters. And so live with the end in view. Third, don't desire to be rich. Don't desire to be rich. It's foolish to want to pierce yourself with many pangs. Loathe your desire to be wealthy. Be content with what you have. Fourth, stop worrying that you won't have enough for yourself. Preaching this to myself. Stop worrying that you won't have enough for yourself. God is faithful. Do you believe Him? Do you, he will take care of His people. You can trust Him to provide for your needs. It is impossible to give too much to God and to His purposes because you can never outgive a generous God. Fifth, beware of judging others here. Issues surrounding wealth and money are a huge temptation to judge others and their choices. The temptation is to think about those who are more wealthy than yourself or have the things that you want to have. And the point of this passage is to evaluate yourself first. Six, lift your eyes from what does not satisfy riches to the only one who can satisfy Take your eyes off of what doesn't satisfy, what gets rotten and moth-eaten and stolen and corroded. Take your eyes off of riches and put them on the only one who can satisfy. Money will never satisfy the cravings of your heart. You know that. You will never have enough. Only Jesus is glorious enough to captivate your heart for all eternity. Not the next gadget. Not the next upgrade. Not the next promotion. Only Jesus can satisfy Seventh and finally, Jesus is the only one who can rescue from eternal condemnation. Jesus is the only one who can rescue from eternal condemnation. We're not saved by giving money away. We're not saved by living a frugal lifestyle. Only Jesus can rescue from the coming judgment. Only Jesus is a sure advocate in the presence of the Lord of hosts. Only Jesus can save us in the day of slaughter. And so turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and flee the wrath of God for your sins by embracing Jesus as your only and greatest treasure. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank You for Your Word. I want to thank You for the conviction of Your Word. And I want to pray that You would help us to feel conviction where we need to and repent of our sin where we need to and do what You've called us to do. To obey You. To not be merely hearers of Your Word, but help us to be doers of Your Word. That our faith would not be merely said, but our faith would be action. Our faith would be obedience. That our faith would be accompanied with good, God-glorifying works. Oh God, we need Your help in all these things. God, I pray for those in this room who are not trusting You, who are trusting in their money and their possessions. Oh God, I pray you give them the gift of repentance and that they would treasure Jesus and Jesus alone. That all of us in this moment would turn our eyes upon Jesus. The King who will return for His own. We praise You. We bless You. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Turn your eyes.